Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Horticulture Week podcast. Today I'm with horticulturalist and garden writer Barbara Siegel. I'm Matthew Appleby, Hort Week editor. Now, Barbara is editor of The Horticulturalist, the quarterly journal of the Chartered Institute of Horticulture, and she is a well-known gardening author. And um, I often see Barbara at horticulture events, which either means I go to a lot of events or um, Barbara does, or we both do. But I find going to a lot of horticultural events very useful for knowing what's going on in the industry. And I guess um, that's what's important to you too, Barbara, getting out and about and finding out what's going on. Definitely. We've had, what, two years of not getting out and about, so it's much doubly interesting and useful to get out now because you're actually able to talk to people face-to-face, which seems better than uh, Zoom is face-to-face, but it does seem better when you're actually standing next to them. No, wholly agreed. And I recently saw you at a book launch, and I know you've got a new book out, Secret Gardens of the Southeast. So can you tell me a bit about that? I can, Matt. It was... um, commissioned well before lockdown and then I I think I managed to get out and see about three or four gardens in the October before 2020 and then I couldn't get out at all so the dates all went back and eventually I got out and I was able to find interesting gardens not all secret but many of them were new to me so that makes them secret in my book because uh, I hadn't found them or visited them and uh, it was great going to eventually being able to go and visit people because lockdown did mean that you couldn't go to gardens for a while. So how do you find these gardens and what's your approach when when you get there? Well mostly um, it was from chatting to garden designers who told me about gardens that they thought were excellent 
Um, and of course, there were some that I knew already and uh, was keen to revisit. And uh, then it's a bit like being um, sort of handed on <laughs> to friends. Um, you know, one thing leads to another. Somebody will say, well, if, have you been here? You should go there. And so you end up seeing some wonderful places. Um, and the approach, when I'm there, I usually meet the owner and walk around with them or we talk in their kitchen wherever it's more comfortable to just get the background of the garden and then I go out and some of the guard head owners do their own gardening but others have gardening staff so I meet them as well and build up a picture of the history and what what's happening in the garden but unlike the photographer who gets there several times I usually only have one bite at the cherry I see. And what what have you learned from visiting these gardens? Have you seen any sort of trends or any anything particularly going on which you wouldn't expect? I'm not sure that I've seen anything um, that I wouldn't expect, but it's just a sort of the fact is I think is that gardeners are amazing. Their imagination and their dedication to their gardens um, just is astonishing. That one of the gardens called Town Place near Chef. Sheffield Park in um, Sussex, one of the owners had this sort of vision that he wanted to grow a priory out of hornbeam. So he bought hornbeam whips, measured out a um, the, the, the dimensions of a church, basically, and grew this over 30 years, shaping it and pruning it and cutting it so that it's got it, two stories got doors and windows and buttresses and this summer his daughter got married in it and I sort of find that an amazing leap of imagination <laughs> and I think that's what I discovered was that sort of just peep gardeners are amazing. That is a lovely story. Now you've got a long career in horticulture going back to qualifying in botany in South Africa I read in 1965 so can you tell us a bit about your career? Well, it wasn't 1965, it was a bit later. Oh, yeah, 65 was when I left school, ah. um, so it's eons ago. <laughs> <laughs> I had botany as one of my matric subjects at school, and I left it because people kept telling me, oh, working in gardens is no place for a woman, uh, you won't get a career here, all that sort of thing. So I went into journalism, and it was really from being a journalist that I got back into horticulture. Um, and in the 1980s in London, there was a big move to have horticulture on telly. And I think it was about that time that BBC Gardener's World, or was it the 90s, BBC Gardener's World started. And um, there were lots more magazines than there are now. So I got more freelance work and Around about that time, about 93, I started editing The Horticulturist. So I'm sure um, you can do the maths, um, and that's a long time ago. It's 30 years this year, by the sounds of it. So that's <laughs> for the Chartered Institute of Horticulture. So what, what, what would you say, you know, how, how, what, what do you write about in there? What do you edit in there, and what do you see the, the, the Institute's role as? Well, because it's uh, it used to be a magazine that came out quarterly, but now it only comes out three times a year. Uh, so there's 
very few chances where I'll actually hit the news. <laughs> so <laughs> we go, we always decide that it will have a broader approach and carry articles that you might not find in the mainstream news magazines like yours. Um, so, you know, for example, coming up, um, I've got some interesting uh, perhaps I shouldn't mention it just in case you snatch it away from me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think um, I was able to do something a little bit in depth about um, Project Giving Back, which was the oh, wonderful um, last Chelsea and the Chelsea before. I think it was um, a great charity funding project for about seven or eight gardens. So we were able to give that quite a, a big article. And... We, I think, yeah, we go for bigger things than you might in the news, uh, like conservation, plant conservation. Well, project, project, it's interesting. Project giving back. I guess the million dollar question about the uh, the million pound project is uh, who's putting the money in? Have you put that in? Have you have you included that? Keep digging. I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We've got we've got a fair idea, but you know, I guess I guess we. We'll, 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 that will all come out one day when it all, when it's all over because it's it's on its second year out of three, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what about the Garden Media Guild role you have? I I haven't edited it for a long time, so I'm just an ordinary member, um, and um, I just you know uh, like you go to events, try to go to some of the garden visits, and I I think the role has always been not my role but the gmg has always been a sort of networking place for its members mm. to um you know maybe have better access to editors and uh jobs all that sort of thing i don't know well i mean i thought it was interesting you know uh that it's now gone back you know for its live awards um but um you know i thought you know it could it could be a, an organisation that tackled some of the big issues in horticulture. For instance, there are no longer any um, gardening editors at newspapers, and you know, gardening freelancers like yourself, you know, often talk about pay and how it never goes yeah. up. I mean, do, do you think those things could be campaigned upon harder? I was, in my way of looking at things, I belong to the NUJ as well, and I've always seen the NUJ, National Union of Journalists, as being my campaigning. Mm-hmm. Um, organization for pay and whatever but if you haven't got a gardening editor there's nobody you can really appeal to Mm. so I'm not really sure that there is I would hope that they would take that sort of thing up Uh, I you know think it would be good to mention it no no um, no no and at the event I saw you know there's a lot of influencers there now a lot of you know bloggers, podcasters, people who are not in the normal sort of mainstream written media like they always used to be. And I guess that's reflected in the net change of name of the Garden Media Guild to the um, from the Garden Writers Guild. Um, and some of them kind of expect pay for product placement. I mean, have you got any views on that? I mean, you've got, you know, a foot in both camps there. Um, you've got a website, all that type of thing. Well, I've never gone along that route of having um, paid product probably because I haven't got enough followers to <laughs> sort of warrant it. Um, but, yes, I suppose I've always, as a writer, I've always been happy if I've been able to get, um, you know, access to things to trial. Um, and if I found them worthwhile, then, you know, I would write about them or or not. But I think, 
it, it's, it is a different ball game now, as you say, with influencers and people who um, perhaps, you know, there isn't the regulation that there might be normally. Um, you know, if, if you write something or if I write something that um, is not quite right, we, we've got to think about the, um, the legal aspects of things as far as our publishers or proprietors are concerned. And I don't know that that applies um, with influencers, but uh, be interesting, you know, if any, if there ever were any challenges um, there. But you talk about the Garden Media Guild changing its name. It actually changed its name at a time when the garden photographers were campaigning to have a more inclusive name. So it was well before um, influencers and bloggers, you know, became quite an important part of its membership. Ah, yes. Um, the photographers felt that writers was excluding, the, you know, the name Garden Writers was excluding them. Ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I guess the, na- the name does cover everybody now. Um... It does, yes. Now, just, just looking um, at... Where, where you where you live and where you where, you know your your base it's it's Suffolk so what why Suffolk and what's special about Suffolk to you? Well, I moved here in about 1986, and it was because it everything was much cheaper here. You could buy a house with a garden for much less than you could if you moved west. And uh, at that time, we my husband and I wanted to move out of London, and so we did, and we had a three-quarter acre garden where I grew things and planted beds and photographed them and put them into books and all sorts of things. So it was my own little laboratory, really. Um, And then I just like it because with my growing up in South Africa, where the skies are very wide, it feels the horizons are wide, Suffolk and East Anglia in general are like that. You know, you've got very wide open skies, beautiful sunsets I know that you've got beautiful sunsets everywhere but it just feels (laughs) an emptier sort of place and um, we do have some amazing gardens and what sort of garden have you got oh mine's very small very packed um, productive fruit and veg and herbs Um, anything that doesn't produce I'm afraid gets the cut very um hard editor here <laughs> as far as gardening <laughs> produce is concerned um and yeah i have a great sort of hankering for a few things that won't ever fit in so um, i'd love to have a witch hazel um uh, but already i've got so many fruit trees that there's you know no more space what about herbs i know that's a big a big passion of yours and uh you've written and edited a lot about herbs over the years mm. Yes, I I have. I started writing about herbs probably, um, that was my third book, I think, was called The Herb Garden Month by Month. And I had two stints of editing the Herb Society's magazine, but I no longer edit that. And I now just write about them, you know, for my own interest. And every December, I try to write a sort of daily diary about herbs, which uh, I did this December. And uh, collected it and put it onto my new Substack page, which at the moment is, um, I'm not asking anyone to pay for it, <laughs> but it would be lovely to earn some money eventually from it. 
Well, tell me about Substack. I was talking to Michael Perry about this the other day, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's much too modern for me, Barbara. Tell me, what what, what is it? <laughs> well, it's a sort of social media platform, really. Um, it's got, you, basically, you put up your blog or your newsletter. You can make it as newsy as you want to. Um, and it's very easy to do, which for a technophobe as like I am, you know, Christina will attest to that. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's easy to do. And at the moment, I just put it up and people have subscribed for free to it. And, uh, you know, one day when I've got a number of subscribers and I feel it's got some traction, then I might put a paywall up on it. I think Michael has probably already got gazillions of subscribers, but um, he's very dedicated. No, no, indeed he is. It sounds like that's that's the way ahead. So um, in December, your 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 herbs, what, what do you write about in December about herbs? What do you say? Well, in basically, I called it in and out of my herb garden. And so there are a lot of herbs at the moment that are still growing and giving me material for cooking. But obviously, basil is not. But I have got one basil in the greenhouse, which is called African Blue. It's a perennial if you can keep it over winter. And uh, so really, I just talk about the plants that I've used over the year and um, the ones that are thriving now. Um, but it's that's why it's in and out of the garden, because some of them are out at the moment. They're talking of in and out. Herbs seem to come in and out of fashion. Sometimes they are the next big thing and everyone should be growing them. And sometimes they go a bit off the boil. Do you, what, where do you think herbs are now in terms of like people growing them and, 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 and fashions? I think people are loving them. Um, lots of people, um, you know, grow them and use them medicinally. I've not ever gone down that route, but I just like the flavors that they add. I mean, I know, you know, for instance, if I was cooking, if I'm cooking fish, I always put tarragon with it, um, as well as chives, say, just and dill. Those three seem always to work very well in with that ingredient. Um, but you know, vegetarian dishes are equally enhanced with so many herbs. So yeah, I wouldn't be without them. And I think that um, you know, we've got a number of wonderful herb growers in the country who grow really beautiful herbs, pepper pot herbs, Norfolk herbs, and Jekka's Herb Farm. I'm trying to think if there's a, a fourth one that I use a lot. Um, there's urban herbs in Birmingham. So, you know, people can get wonderful herb material if they can't grow it themselves. Um, and also the supermarkets. I mean, what, 10 years ago, you couldn't, you could only, you know, get a tiny pot of dried herbs now you can go in and get fresh growing herbs and beautifully cut fresh herbs so i think the whole thing has changed have you got another book up your sleeve about herbs or or, or something else something else no at the moment i'm i think what i'm calling it at the moment is thinking time <laughs> rather than uh. drinking time. it's thinking time and i i've been doing it for a few months now and nothing really has become clear <laughs> What do you see as the state of the book publishing industry and gardening at the moment? There's an awful lot being published, but as an as an author, um, it takes an awful long while to earn anything out of it. Um, and yeah, it's a 
But I think there's a, a lot of competition. Someone posted a picture the other day of a bookshop um, and they said they felt that the selection was really poor in this particular bookshop. So, of course, I went very deeply into the, um, the shelves and I could tell that they hadn't really got some of the new books that they should have had on their shelves. I just wonder if there's a, I don't know, not so much a push from publishers into bookshelf, into bookshops as there ought to be. Do you think it's all happening on, on, on Amazon? Amazon? Yes, probably. Yeah. Why do you think there's a lot being published at the moment? Do you think that's a post-COVID thing? Like a lot of people did a lot of writing during the lockdown? It seems that way. Um, you know, there's people like... Um, we, we met at um, Miranda Yanatka's book launch and, you know, that was particularly something that she'd written during lockdown. And I think in February there's another book launch, um, which, you know, will be interesting because these are two people whose first books they are. So um, I think there's more of that. Oh, that 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 that's Phil 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 Clayton no, you're talking about in, no, in February, February is it? It's Andrew O'Brien. Oh. Um, All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was at that launch as well, wasn't he? Yeah, and his is it about uh, standing still and watching the garden? That's right, something like that. <laughs> a very con- con- a contemplative type book, which which you'd expect may well have been written down lockdown uh, during lockdown. Yeah, when you had more time to think. Well, yeah, I th- yeah, I I think that. It's very nice to see new talent and to see new people with new ideas. No, no. And also, there's this big crossover between gardening and using. So that you see that you see that that crossover happening a lot, yeah. Yes, and years ago, I wanted to write a book um, on pumpkin and squash because I was growing so much of that, and I couldn't find any books. Um, a, a writer called and horticulturist called Caroline Boisset had written a book about it. And she had an amazing display one year at the RHS Autumn Show when they had those grand shows in London at Westminster Halls. And she just had so many different types and varieties. So I, at that time, I had put a proposal into somebody about it and it was growing and using and cooking with them. And I can remember the publisher saying to me, but where would you put it on the shelves in a bookshop? Would it be in the cookery section or in the gardening section? Well, I don't think anyone thinks like that now. I think, you know, if you write a book about plants and growing them and using them, it can go in both sections, surely. <laughs> I've just been in Australia and they call they call, they call the button of squash in Australia the button of pumpkin, which I think is probably a better name. Um, but I've just been in Australia. But you know, have, have you? You're, you're obviously from South Africa originally. How much influence does your South African background have on your gardening? Well, I suppose I always try things which might not succeed because they, you know, I grew them at home. So I've got Cape. When I say at home, I mean in my childhood. I've got Cape gooseberries, which um, you know are edible um, physalis those little lanterns and they're just delicious but you know I can't grow them outside but I have one or two in a pot pots in the greenhouse um just sort of for old time's sake but yes the squash and pumpkins um really date from there we used to have one absolutely beautiful one which I think you can get a seed here and it used to be called gem squash just a like a, a rather 
big tennis ball size, um, beautiful, soft flesh with butter and salt and pepper. It was good. Do you see more hot weather plants being grown in, in the UK now? I mean, it's very hot summer, but obviously in December it snowed a lot, which might have killed a lot of things off. But, uh, you know, having just been in Australia, I'll go on about that again. Uh, the, uh, there's, so many, there's so many amazing plants there, which you think these would be brilliant in the UK. Will they survive? Well, I guess we've always sort of snatched plants from the Mediterranean and moved them up into our gardens. So why not? Um, you know, if but again, you still would have to give them a bit more protection and a bit more cosseting than, you know, can we rely on this real hot summer um, coming every year? Um, and would we... What about some of the old things? I mean, in my garden this uh, summer, um, a small magnolia tree that I've got growing absolutely scorched, and I don't know if that's going to, you know, come back strongly or not. But the leaves just went to sort of crinkle paper, and the an, a perennial kale that I had just looked as if it wasn't going to survive. It does look good now, but you know, there are things like that that you really do wonder if they are going to cope with the heat no i'm the same i had a camellia and uh i think it's just died of you know heat heat exhaustion yes you know it's not a lack of water you can chuck a load of water on it but you can't stop it being 40 degrees can you no. i suppose you can shade it a bit but but yeah no it makes it very tricky but this all brings me on to our final question barbara which we ask all our lovely guests on the hot week podcast which is about desert island plants and what plant would you take to a dead island what is your favorite plant well, it would have to be a herb, I'm afraid, oh, <laughs> so I could, yeah. you know, flavour those dishes that I'm able to cook. So I'm, I wouldn't be allowed two, would I? No, just the one. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, no, we're very easy going. I would love to have this basil that I mentioned that's called African Blue, mm. which is a perennial, so I would have that all year, and especially on the desert island because it would survive. Um, and the other one would be chervil, which is more of a shade-loving plant, um, but it's just wonderful in salads, in omelettes, all sorts of things. It's a, got a lovely, fresh aniseed taste to it. So those would be my two must-have herbs. Oh, and that's very painful to only have two. To only have two. <laughs> that, that's, that's lovely choices. The first time I think we've had those chosen, so that is brilliant. And it's been lovely chatting to you, Barbara on the Hort Week podcast. Um, so thanks very much to Barbara Siegel, horticulturalist and writer. I'm Hort Week editor Matthew Appleby. And this is the Hort Week podcast. Make sure you never miss one. Subscribe to or follow Hort Week podcasts via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. Uh, and once again, thanks very much to Barbara. I'm Matthew Appleby and goodbye until next time. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcast og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt. Det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.